I need to know, Ethan, do you remember when Rock was young? As a matter of fact, Sarah, I do. Me and Susie had so much fun. You knew Susie, too? <laughs> Were you friends with Elton John? I would pay a not inconsiderable amount of money to be friends with Elton John. That's fair. <laughs> yeah. Seems like a nice guy. Real talk? Um, apparently, like, a, that dude listens to music, like, nonstop. Like, he's always looking for, like, new bands and stuff. And he does a lot to, like, help get people on their feet. He does a lot of buying instruments and stuff. Or, like, if he finds a band that's, like, just starting out that he really likes, like, he will actually do a lot to, like, support them. And I think that's uh, super cool for you know, like an elder statesman of the industry to be that involved with uh, younger performers. It sounds like Elton John is not a man who is stuck in the past. If he's out there listening to new upcoming bands and, you know, working with the up and coming, that is a man who is thinking of the future and, and his legacy as well. That's a very, very good point. It would be nice if some, you know, other people would uh, take on that mindset. It feels like a lot of people are stuck in the past these days, especially people in, for instance, Hollywood. I know I crowbarred that in, but they put Harold Ramis's dead fucking body up on a silver screen in the new Ghostbusters. And that sucks, and we need to talk about it. Yeah, we do. I'm glad we're on the same page here. I forgot about that. I forgot that happened. But that is exactly what I want to talk about. I've been thinking about nostalgia lately and how it sucks, but it's not bad. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think there is value to nostalgia, but only if it's used properly. And I think a lot of films and shows and stuff don't don't actually know how to use it effectively or they don't care enough to use it effectively because it's about just appealing with fan service without earning earning it really yes agreed could i um paint you a picture i have no artistic talent so it might look pretty bad but yeah did you see the 2009 Star Trek reboot movie? I did. Did you enjoy it? I liked it at the time. I haven't like revisited it since. I don't know if I would feel that it held up. But at the time, I was like, yeah, that was fun. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought. Now, I'm, I'm not a massive Star Trek fan. I remember watching uh, the original series quite a bit as a kid because that's what was on. My parents were watching it. And yeah, I've caught episodes of the the newer stuff, but I am by far not a huge fan of Star Trek. Not that I dislike it, but Star Trek is a really solid example of nostalgia as a tool done well and respectfully and well. <laughs> Do you remember when Kirk meets Spock Prime? Uh, like vaguely. I remember that they're on like an ice planet. Yep. And that's about... That's most of what I remember. All right. So Kirk just gets out of this big kerfluffle 
and he's in this icy cavern, and he is saved by a Vulcan man, and he sees the the back of this guy, and he turns around, and we see that it is an older version of Spock, played by Leonard Nimoy. And, you know, Kirk is, like, confused. He doesn't believe his Spock at first, blah, blah, blah. And it, it's just, it all makes sense. It ends up being a massive part of the story, and it is so meaningful to fans that that is Nimoy. It could have been any actor playing old Spock, but to see that kind of care put into it and getting to see an actor who has played Spock for 50 years who actually was the one who uh, pioneered the Vulcan hand greeting, mm. reprising that role. That just feels good. Yeah, it's nice. It mattered to the story, and it had a little musical motif when he turns around. Beautiful. Now that is good nostalgia. Yes, I agree. That is a, that's a solid example. Meanwhile, <laughs> Ghostbusters. Yeah, so I can't. I I will admit, haven't I haven't watched Ghostbusters Afterlife. Mm. Um, so I can't like I can't take too many swings at it. I will just say, when it was announced and like the first trailers happened, I had a feeling deep in my bones that there was going to be like a CGI Harold Ramis in this movie, and then it came out. And I was like, I'm probably not going to watch it anytime soon. Like, I don't, I'm not, I like Ghostbusters. I'm not like a, I need to go see Ghostbusters in the theater guy. So I'm just going to Google, like, is there a CGI Harold Ramis in the new Ghostbusters? And there is. And I, I like that just like deflated. I was just like, I don't, who wants that? (laughs) Like, I don't. I don't want that. <laughs> the man's dead. Like, the real man is really dead. Yeah. Like, don't put his fucking ghost in your movie to be like, hey, remember? Remember that character that you loved, played by that beloved actor who tragically died? <laughs> like, that sucks. That is a great point. And I, I don't think that's always the wrong choice. but. I think it often is if you don't if you don't have that purpose or meaning behind it. And maybe they did it well. I don't know. I didn't watch it either. But uh I think that, like with the Star Trek example, uh Nimoy was really into his role as Spock and he got to reprise it in two thousand nine. And he unfortunately passed in two thousand fifteen, right before they started filming for the um Beyond movie. Oh, yes. And so I can't I can't tell if that was like CGI imagery on the the video call that Spock is having with Spock or if it's another actor or like what they did for that. But I think that was justified. Whereas and I haven't watched this either and I probably won't. The fucking Flash 2023. My God. Oh, yeah. No, I'm not touching that thing. (laughs) I don't need to see anything else that has Ezra Miller in it. Yeah, I mean, that. Yeah, that's how I feel as well. Um, <laughs> that's one reason I don't care to watch it. But also the 
the CGI avatars of uh of famous and deceased actors, Christopher Reeves as uh, Superman, but like really badly done CGI. Mm. Have you seen any of those images? No, I haven't. I'm going to look them up right now. And again, I don't know if it was a well done homage, if it was really honoring Christopher Reeves, but I don't, I get the sense it was kind of just thrown in there. Yeah, I... Well, it's like, like Rogue One, for instance, right? Has like mm, questionable quality CGI Leia and whatnot. But it's like the whole point of this movie is to set up, uh, is that you're you're watching the setup of a new hope, right? And I can understand why they would want to cap that film off with like and then leia got the plans as she had at the start of a new hope right like they're really just sort of closing that loop yep so like i'm i'm okay with bad cgi leia because i get why it's there it was an established part of the story yes they didn't need to do it. Right, yeah. I don't think it was detrimental that they did. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't love the images I'm seeing from The Flash. And some of it is interesting. And it's things I want to like. I do, I do like nostalgia. I think nostalgia is beautiful when it's done well. And so having the various Batmans, they had George Clooney, they had Ben Affleck. They had, uh, oh God, Birdman. What's his face? Michael Keaton. Michael, Yeah, they had Michael Keaton. He was pretty involved mm-hmm. uh, in that, which I think is just really cool. I enjoy that. And they had Nicolas Cage Superman, which I didn't know was a thing. Oh, you recently. know? Yeah. 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 So they just had a brief glimpse of that. And I, I mean, that's like a fun, that's fun. Yeah, I that's like that. That's a deep that. cut. Well, like, uh... And I haven't watched this either, but from what I understand, the TV show Titans Mm. did sort of a multiverse hopping thing in like the final season or something or the most recent season. I don't know. I've lost track of that show. But at some point, somewhat recently, there's a scene where a character is sort of like looking into multiple other universes and... I think that there are some, you know, some of those kind of actor gags. And there's also one of the universes he looks into is uh, shows Grant Morrison, who is a pretty prominent writer of DC Comics. Nice. And like, that's super fun. And I love Grant Morrison very much. So like that shit is is very cool. And it's also, you know, it's a three second scene. And if you don't know who Grant Morrison is, then like it doesn't mean anything. It's just like, oh, this is just another universe where there's this person, whatever. But if you recognize Grant Morrison, it's like, oh, shit, that's Grant. That's so cool. Yeah, you feel well, I I don't speak for everyone or you, but you feel kind of seen as a nerd. Mm hmm. You, you get to have that cool moment of, I recognize that, and it doesn't really matter, but I do. Yes. Yeah. 
which is very uh, gratifying for some reason. Yes. It's like, oh boy, we love recognizing things we know as uh, modern humans. Right. Patterns are our friends. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes those patterns are abused in the 80s, I think especially, just get like thrown at people. Ready Player One, the movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not 80s specific, but Space Jam 2. I haven't watched any of these, but I have I have seen enough. Uh, it's just wild. Right. It's people. People want to score points by just putting like uh, Ready Player One. Just there is a Gundam like they would just put the Gundam on the screen and then just expect you to go. It's Gundam. Like, that's my grandpa. Yeah. Gundam. <laughs> I love Gundam. But it's like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, like, I, I, because I'm a big Gundam fan, I've watched the fight scene that the Gundam is in. And it's not like it feels like the Gundam. <laughs> like, it, it just looks like it. Cool, I guess. It doesn't really do anything for me as a fan of that franchise. Yeah, I mean, it's just imagery at that point. It's like a, the husk of it without the soul. Yes. Uh, have you seen Space Jam 2? No. Have you seen any images or videos of it? Uh, like a little bit. I've seen like stills from like the crowd yes. during a basketball game. Yeah, one of those, those sports ball scenes with people. Yeah, it is just like floor to ceiling. There's so many characters from WB. They are taking every IP, I think even Clockwork Orange, and putting and putting them on screen together in this massive crowd, which is cool, Like, I guess. I mean, it's... <laughs> so this is something that we've seen in like the game space a lot to the point that like my friends and I have a shorthand for it. Hmm. So obviously there's games like Super Smash Brothers, right? Where they just take all these video game characters and throw them all together because like, wouldn't it be fun if, you know, Mario could punch link in the face or whatever the answer is yes it's super fun yes except it's link stabbing mario <laughs> right but there's like this weird expansion on that idea that my friends and i call like the Fortnite effect essentially where Fortnite just started being like do you want to look like the Terminator and Spider-Man and, you know, a Jedi? And, like, and I don't know. It's hard to fault because the Fortnite is just, like, a multiplayer game with no story. And, like, that's why Smash works, too. Like, I know that a couple of Smash games have story modes, but, like, it's a multiplayer game that you're basically just, playing to hang out with friends and it doesn't need to have like narrative significance that these characters are together or whatever. Mm -hmm. And especially smash, you know, is so explicitly like you are playing with your toys, right? Like that's all this is. Yeah. Yeah. the original smash brothers, that was, that was the whole deal. Yeah. But this Fortnite effect is like spreading into other weird shit. I don't, 
play Magic the Gathering, but I have friends that play Magic the Gathering. And every time we hang out, they're like, oh, yeah, did you see the new like Warhammer set that just dropped for Magic? (laughs) You can play as like Abaddon the Despoiler now. And you can build an Optimus Prime deck. My buddy, I'm a big uh, Kaiju fan. And my one of my buddies that plays bought me singles of all the different Godzilla cards just so that I could have these cool Godzilla cards. But like, it's fucking weird. <laughs> it's weird that Magic the Gathering is now just like card game Fortnite, where it's just like name a property. You can probably get cards of it. D&D. I have I. Yep. <laughs> They did it. They got me. They got me. I don't play Magic the Gathering. I used to as a wee lass, but uh, same. I, I now have new Magic the Gathering cards that I'll probably not look at for a long time, and they're D and D themed because I like D and D. Fuck you, <laughs> wizards. Yep. See, and this is this is the problem with bad nostalgia. It works. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> what they need to do next is release some Pokemon cards for Magic the Gathering. <laughs> and I, I will say, I, I just came down on it as bad nostalgia. I will give credit where it's due. They are at least like designing them mechanically appropriately. Like, I, I also have my friend that got me the Godzilla cards also got me an Optimus Prime card because like it's so fun. Like I'm not a big Transformers dude. It was just we both thought it was really funny. And like, yeah, Optimus Prime is like an artifact creature. He has an ability called more than meets the eye that does different shit. Like he's two sided. So you can flip him between, you know, one side is his like Optimus Prime form and the other is like truck. They're they're putting in work, but like then on the flip side, it's like not all the cards are like that, probably because they don't want to limit certain aspects of design space to these like novelty sets. So like all of the Godzilla cards are they're just other creatures. They're cards that already existed in the game. They just have Godzilla for the art. Okay. Yeah, and these things I don't think they're harmful. No. And it does it does help that they put in the work. Uh, where it matters right yeah and even even a uh, space jam uh, there was some like multiverse hopping shenanigans and at least from a design and art perspective they used a lot of the styles from those locations or those ips like uh like wonder woman or having comic panels and whatnot so there's some craftsmanship there right mm-hmm. and I, I think that helps even if even if toward the end it is just one big collage of look at all the things we own, please watch them. <laughs> right. But uh, what I I have an idea of this, but I want to hear your idea first. What is good nostalgia? I just asked what is good nostalgia, but uh, the literal definition of nostalgia might be helpful. It's something I could not uh, articulate on my own without looking it up, even though I use the word all the time. It is. A sentimental longing or wistful affection for the past, typically for a period or place with happy personal associations. But I think we use nostalgia differently a little bit. Yeah, I think nostalgia in the popular consciousness has come to just mean like a reference to an older thing. Like, I I think there is 
I think people generally understand that there is that it's it's meant to evoke that like positive feeling. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think I think we use it in a broader sense most of the time. Yeah, and it, it really has been diluted, I think, to where the, the emotion is sometimes removed from it. But yeah, what what do you think is good nostalgia in media? Well, I'm gonna do what I was destined to do from the beginning, which is talk about Scream. <laughs> put I put Scream Five in my notes. <laughs> yeah. I didn't I didn't put anything around it because I figured you'd you'd cover that. All right. Oh, that's so funny. Lay it out. So so I'm gonna I'm gonna give two examples here. I'm gonna give my nostalgia do my good nostalgia and my nostalgia don't like the bad example of nostalgia and i'm going to illustrate this point with two horror franchises that i love very much so the first scream scream the 2022 film scream 5 essentially it's technically just called scream but scream 5 is very much reliant on nostalgia for the original scream trilogy screams one two three and most specifically scream the original and that nostalgia manifests in a bunch of different ways the most prominent obviously is that it features returning characters from the first three films um i don't want to get too like spoilery yeah i still need to watch it Because I'm going to make you watch. Yeah, I'm going to make you watch all of them at some point. (laughs) But like, obviously, features returning characters. That's a huge point of nostalgia. There are some subtler things. There's some musical cues that are clearly meant to evoke nostalgia, which worked like a fucking charm on me. I got to say, the first three films all use the song Red Right Hand by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Um, it's a fucking rad song. It's really good. Um, if uh, if anyone listening has seen Peaky Blinders, I guess it's also in that show. I haven't watched that, but um, great song. Uh, it's in the first three movies. It's not in Scream 4, uh, which is kind of a surprise because that was like still a Wes Craven movie and everything. But uh, there is a point where it plays diegetically in Scream 5. Uh, it's it's on the radio at one point, and that like made me smile. I was like, ah, red right hand. That's a nice touch. Uh, at a later point, there is a, a character, one of the returning characters from the earlier films, has a brief scene, and during that scene, a snippet of their uh, like personal theme from Scream Two plays. And um, uh, that like almost made me tear up the first time I caught it because I I actually really like that song specifically. And it's only in Scream 2 a handful of times. Um, and it, ha- it was, was never in any of the later films. And uh, that made me really happy. But like the, the biggest and most blatant example of the film relying on nostalgia is that the entire climax of scream five occurs in the same location as the climax of scream so okay 
Oh. Yes. I remember Scream. I watched the first one recently. Yes. Okay. So it's all the same house and everything. The setup is pretty similar as well. Um, And it's obviously... Like, it's the kind of thing where they don't... Like, it's a reveal. It's a it's a twist, right? That that's where this is happening. You see shots of characters in this location uh, for a couple scenes, and then they do the reveal of, like, but wait, this is that house, or whatever. But as a person who's watched Scream, like, two dozen times, probably, like, I knew. <laughs> like, <laughs> there was... Like, you know, after like half a scene or whatever, I was like, I, like, I know that door, like that doorway where the basement's right over there. Like, this is that house. Like, I've seen this foyer. I recognize that microwave. <laughs> yes, this is a Unix system. I know this. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I just think like it's it's really well done because. The broader points that the film is making, like the the core themes of Scream 5, and again, I don't want to get too deep into like spoiler territory, but Scream 5 is about being a fan of Scream. Like it is about characters who care about the franchise because Scream has always been this weird meta thing, right? So like, it's significant that it's happening in the same house to the characters who are like in that house mm-hmm. in Scream 5. Like they are all like, oh shit, this is the house from Scream. And that like means something to each of them. And I think like that's that's a really that really ramps up the effectiveness of that movie is like it is it's playing on all this like nostalgia for the original film. And you can tell that the creators are all huge fans of the original film, but it's also like really directly engaging with the idea of that nostalgia. And it's pretty directly asking, is this healthy? Like, is it, is it healthy to have this sort of nostalgia and obsession with the past? That's really a question at the heart of that movie. And I think it uses that stuff to enhance its narrative. I think it's a really excellent use of nostalgia in film. So they have they have the imagery with the house and familiar scenes and set design. And they have the the score and the audio motifs that you hear throughout it. And they have a plot reason a narrative reason to be doing what they're doing yes and and it works i mean scream six as well is kind of playing in similar territory there are a lot of things in scream six that are pretty direct references to scream two um it's less scream six is less engaged with nostalgia conceptually um at least less directly so, but it's also because Scream is this very meta franchise. It is talking a lot about the nature of a long-running franchise, and particularly one that has 
as much history as Scream. You know, this is a franchise that's been around for like 15 years. Or, uh, sorry, <laughs> more than that. Um, I'm fucking old, like 25 years mm-hmm. at this point, right? Um, and so it's it's really talking about what does it mean for the franchise to have gone on this long and how does it move forward from here? I think those are really interesting questions for a film franchise to be asking itself and its audience. And especially Scream, like, I don't know, Scream is just so perfectly designed for that because it is, it's always been a reflection of the genre, the industry, the audience reactions and stuff. Like, it's always been so deeply entrenched in that stuff. And I mean, one of the things that I think is interesting about Scream as a franchise is like the killer is about nostalgia, right? Like in oh yeah, Halloween and Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, like all of these big slasher franchises, it's the same killer every time. In Scream, it's never the same killer. They're just always wearing the same costume. They're using the same like Roger L. Jackson voice changer, like the villains in Scream are always in some way or another obsessed with the past. Even in the first movie where those tropes, you know, where the costume and all that stuff wasn't a reference to any like earlier thing, the killers are still, you know, obsessed with the past. And Billy's whole motivation is like, you ruin your mother ruined my life. And I want to get back to how my life was before, you know, her and my father had an affair or whatever, like his whole deal is tied up in the past and nostalgia for a time that he can't get back to. And that other weirdo. <laughs> yeah. And then Stu is there because he wants to kill people and have sex with Billy. But, uh, <laughs> but well, sure. That makes perfect sense. Uh, and you have made a compelling argument, whether you meant to or not for me to go watch the rest. Cause now I'm, extra interested uh (laughs) because of all this meta narrative oh yeah i I mean that's one of the reasons i love the franchise so much is it gets so deep into all that stuff but so that's my good example is scream scream the franchise in general (laughs) but like scream 5 specifically i think leans the heaviest into it uh eh, arguably scream 4 is up there as well but now the bad example (laughs) another horror franchise that I like a lot is uh, the Grudge, or in the the original Japanese is Juan, the Curse, or it literally means like Curse Grudge, and some of them are called the Curse, and some of them are called the Grudge, but uh, whatever. Uh, I like that franchise a lot. It's like it's weird, it's scary, it does a lot of interesting things that I don't need to go into for the purposes of talking about nostalgia. Uh, the point being. <laughs> In 2020, there was a like kind of soft reboot. It's what Scream 5 would call a requel, where it's <laughs> not actually in a new continuity. It's technically a sequel to the other films, but it acts as an entry point for people who haven't seen the other stuff. You don't need to have watched the first three American Grudge films to watch and understand 
the 2020 grudge, right? But that movie is fucking soulless. Like, it just repeats a bunch of the scares from the early grudge films and not not even in a way that's like tense or interesting it just goes like oh it's a it's a creepy ghost girl with stringy hair that's pretty scary right you remember that that was pretty spooky kayako's a scary lady it's not kayako this time uh because they're in america but you know um she's got creepy black hair uh (laughs) uh-huh so scary but the like i don't it's it's a it's a it's a bad movie all the way around, but the the things that really there there are points where it really specifically is echoing the early movies, like the new set of ghosts in this movie are their original death that kickstarted everything is like exactly the same as the deaths in the original grudge which is there's a married couple and a child. One of the members of the married couple uh, kills the other one by like shoving them downstairs and stabbing them. Ouch. And then drowns the child. Like that's how, uh, and then kills themselves. Um, And that's basically how it happens in like the original. This movie, I guess to be unique, switches which like spouse it is in the original the husband kills the family and in the new one the wife kills the family and also they have a daughter instead of a son it's just the problem with western feminism these days (laughs) but all it's just so the original like so both films reveal this at like the climax of the movie right up until then, you like don't really know how these people died. You just know that they died. But in the original, it's fucking scary. Mm-hmm. Like this, this scene of all of this playing out is like genuinely horrifying. Kayako like doesn't die immediately after getting thrown down the stairs, uh, but it like destroys her like spinal column. Like she breaks her neck, and it leads to her having this like very famous scary death rattle and this the 2020 grudge is just like it's the most like by the numbers you just see like wife does a stab guy falls down the stairs moving on (laughs) and like it's just oh man it's just like it's not tense it's not frightening it's like okay like you're you're you're, you clearly just want us to go, like, remember Kayako? That was scary. And it's like, yeah, I know that was scary. <laughs> I I could go watch that. <laughs> it would be better. Like, it would be actually interesting. Um, also, in the 2020 Grudge, every single goddamn ghost has Kayako's death rattle. Oh, without a reason, narratively. Right, like, there's, like, one dude that's like, I guess you got stabbed in the throat once. So I, I guess I can see you having it, but you like this lady died in a fucking like car wreck and like you know shit like that. It's like you you don't get a death rattle. No, you got to <laughs> earn that. It's uh, yeah, it's just this lazy 
it's gross. It's, it's low effort, right? Like they're not they're especially in a genre like horror. Like if I'm, if a movie is not like scaring you or unsettling you, then what the fuck is the point? Right. And so to take this super lazy approach of like, we're not really going to shoot this in an interesting way or make it scary, but hopefully it'll make you remember the other better movie that did scare you. (laughs) Phantom Frights, you know, like Phantom Pain. (laughs) It's like, this was, I remember this being scary. Yeah. So it's by the numbers. It's going through the motions. It's using the same, uh, the same structure and like Mm -hmm. even scenes but without the craft. Yes, that's or a the heart. perfect way of describing it. It's the Gundam. Yeah. It's the husk without a soul. Yes. Which, you know, in a different horror movie could be scary. But <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Uh, so was the ending at least good? <laughs> so it's a funny story. I don't know. Um, because I was watching it uh home alone and my wife like texted me that she was on her way home and i had about 15 minutes left of the movie and i thought like caitlin won't my wife won't care if i'm like finishing this up when she gets in or whatever i was like i could finish this and then we could go for lunch or whatever but i just don't i don't care what happens from here on out like i don't i'm not interested in these characters the movie's like not doing anything for me. Uh, so I just turned it off and cooked lunch so that it was ready by the time my wife got home. <laughs> you said, fuck you, sunk cost fallacy. Yeah, I did like, I did Google it afterwards and it, it just ends with her, it ends with the main character lady trying to burn the house down. But twist, that doesn't solve the ghost problem, uh, which people who have watched Juon or The Grudge might recognize as how that movie, how those movies end. Isn't there a Grudge 2? Or is that, or am I thinking of The Ring? There's, well, there's both, yeah. There's a Grudge 2. There's actually, there's three American Grudge movies and like nine Japanese Grudge movies. Oh, man. All right. Yeah. One of them is uh, Sadako versus Kayako, a crossover with The Ring. <laughs> it's like it's like we were talking about earlier it's like the Fortnite. <laughs> that's uh that's pretty cool though the the premise of that movie if i'm not mistaken so everybody knows the ring curse is you watch the movie and you die in seven days right mm-hmm. um so the grudge curse is like if you go into the house where these murders happened then like you'll get killed by ghosts and or driven into a murderous rage one of the two and i believe the premise of sadako versus kayako is that someone watches the ring tape and then is like oh shit now i've got the ring curse i like how do i you know how do i fix it or whatever what if i go into the grudge house and then the two ghosts will like fight over who gets to curse murder me and maybe they'll like cancel each other out. That um that rocks. I I am all about that. <laughs> right. The other thing about the the 2020 grudge, by the way, is that the whole thing has this ugly ass like 
greenish yellow filter <laughs> and it's just i kind of kept cracking up at it because i was like okay so i think that this is because i think that this is homaging the wrong j-horror like american remake because you know what other move like american remake of a japanese horror movie has like a greenish filter over the entire thing the ring so i was like are you oh, no like did the did the whatever the director or the editor or whatever just like get those mixed up in his head and was like the grudge had like this dumb filter over everything right i'm sh- i think it did here we go it's in this one too it's like no that's it didn't that's just sad yeah <laughs> that, is, that is so unfortunate i did not a good movie i don't recommend it <laughs> Clearly, I can spend my time better. Yeah, watch the Scream franchise, watch Juan, watch The Grudge. I'll consider it. Okay, so those are those are good, uh, good foils. If that's the correct use of the word foil, I know that gets misused often. Uh, good juxtaposition. There we go between Scream and The Grudge remake. I um, well, I gosh, I have so many uh, things I want to touch on, but. Going back to a point you made with Scream and the score and those musical cues, um, we've talked a little bit about the the Skywalker, oh gosh, the Rise of Skywalker, the, the sequel trilogy of Star Wars and that final film. Yes. Yeah. That is, a, I think, a good juxtaposition to how Scream handled their score versus how Skywalker handled that one. Yes, I am. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. You said the rise of Skywalker and uh, my my brain just filled with white hot rage. <laughs> I lost concentration. I know you were talking, but all I could hear was somehow Palpatine returned. <laughs> Goodness. So there are probably a million ways we can talk about how that movie was disappointing. But there was this. This YouTube video I watched a while back called um, How the Score or How the Music of Rise of Skywalker is Misleading. And it's by a creator that goes by Sideways. That's their channel. They made some great points that I'm just going to briefly touch on of how, quote, it was all the spectacle with none of the substance. And that felt like a great, uh, just a great description of of how bad nostalgia works yeah i agree it really made me think about the importance of music and consistency which will tie into how i feel about zelda tears of the kingdom but there are scenes they pointed out that i would not have been able to recognize on my own because i'm a very casual fan of star wars but where they're raising the x-wing and it's yoda's theme that's playing because of a very uh, thin connection between how Yoda was there with the X-Wing in the original movie, <laughs> The Emperor Strikes Back. Yeah, in Empire. Yeah. yeah, the Empire. Just like diluting carefully crafted intentions of, of music and the score. It's just disheartening. I feel like that's so much work went into that whole nine movie series and to have it, yeah, just disappointing sad nostalgia so yeah star wars especially with rise of skywalker 
we're back in the the bad territory, <laughs> the bad nostalgia, mm-hmm. the, the misuse of the the motifs and the themes. And uh, you know, I love Tears of the Kingdom, and I know you haven't had a chance to play it yet. Mm-hmm. And we we talked about in a currently unreleased episode uh, a test run about formative gaming experiences. And for me, The Legend of Zelda was a big one uh, because I played it, you know, at that right time in my youth where I understood everything that was going on and it really spoke to me and I loved adventure and I was a cool, adventurous little kid, unlike me as an adult. But uh, (laughs) playing Tears of the Kingdom was, by the ending of it, just, it hit those nostalgia highs just right without leaving anyone out. It could be your first Zelda game, and it would be great. It would all make sense. Zelda tells the same story of good versus evil over and over again with the same main cast, mostly, usually. It should be a great example of, been there, done that, why are we still doing this? But every time they do something a little different, mechanics-wise or character-wise or technology leap, right? And then with Tears of the Kingdom, I got to the end of it, and I was like, they they got everything right with the music. And just, I realized a newcomer to the series would have a very different experience than I did in the ending. Because they hadn't played previous games. But because I had, because I recognized that music, because I, I had those formative experiences with Zelda, it meant so much without being bad <laughs> yeah. you know like without without just being like do you recognize this character cool yeah it let me experience these old emotions and adventures all at once because of this masterfully crafted score that is just like you've completed the game you've had this epic battle and now you get to see the results of the end, and there's all these themes you love just hitting you. It's great. Yeah, i i love I love a fine like this isn't quite nostalgia, I guess, but I love a finely crafted callback. I recently read uh, this book. I just finished it the other day, actually. Um, I think you would really like it. Probably, it's called Bloody Rose. <laughs> oh yeah i've never heard of it interesting uh. <laughs> um but there's there's a there's a really small moment in there um it's funny because i know you haven't yet read kings of the wild which is the first <laughs> book in the like series i mean they're loose enough that you don't need to have read kings of the wild to enjoy bloody rose but there is a scene in Bloody Rose where you meet these two, I, I wouldn't even call them characters. They're two pets that a character has, basically. And they just very briefly, like, someone is like, oh, what are their names? And the owner of the pets says, I think Dane and Gregor are their names. And if you've read Kings of the Wild, that's like a very specific reference that I found very touching and nice. Like it was a, it was a moment that I really appreciated in, in Bloody Rose. And yeah. And I, I just, 
I love stuff like that where it's like it's not I wouldn't necessarily call it like nostalgia, but it's this really nice moment of like if you hadn't read the first book, you wouldn't miss anything. It's not important that this guy has two uh, owl bears named Gregor and Dane. Like it's not a plot point or anything, but it is it's if you have read that first book, it's this really nice moment or like. I'm a big Stephen King fan and uh, it Stephen King's it is like one of my favorite of his books. There's a point in 11, 63, which is another Stephen King book where a character is in the town of Derry in like the early sixties or late fifties or something. I don't remember exactly the time. I think it's the late fifties, but it's, it's during the time of part of it, right? Cause it has a section that takes place in the late fifties and a section that pl- takes place in it's like the mid eighties or whatever. And, uh, it, it didn't really occur to me while reading eleven twenty two sixty three that he was in dairy during the time that it is happening. For those who are not familiar Derry is a fake town in Maine that Stephen, a fictional town in Maine that Stephen King uses in like a lot of his books, right? Uh. So, yeah. So I, I, seeing the character was in Derry was just like a fun, like, oh, it's Derry. That's cool. But it didn't like immediately trip anything in my head because it's like, it's been in a bunch of books. And I just wasn't really thinking about the time line lining up but uh then there is a chapter where the main character in 11 is in this park which is a place that the kids in it play sometimes and he like bumps into and has a short conversation with the two of the kids from it and um like i read those books years apart and uh like i said it is like one of my all-time favorite king books and i cried (laughs) like i got so emotional just like seeing these two characters again who i was like you know didn't i didn't think i would ever i didn't think there would ever be new content or whatever (laughs) like these two these two characters and suddenly like they were there and they felt like they did in the original book like these you know and these books were written 30 years apart or whatever and it was like he just picked him back up and put him in this chapter and and again it's one of those things where if you haven't read it like it's just a scene where this guy talks to two kids in a park and whatever it's you're not losing anything uh narratively by not having read it beforehand but if you have like yeah it just uh it was like a real moment of emotion for me right it's like the book and the author or the director the creator of whatever material is saying i see you i recognize you i know i have fans of my work and i respect my own work by not just you know moving on right yeah, it's like saying, like, I know that you love this and I do, too. Yeah, I say that as someone who has never read Stephen King, but he seems cool. I've seen some of his tweets, so I have 
read some Stephen King. <laughs> He's uh, usually quite good. Imagine if I said I've seen some of his exes. God. Ugh. Yeah, I hate it too. All right. Anyway. <laughs> well, yeah, getting back on track, I, I think we covered a lot of what I wanted to cover. Now, there are other great examples like the Lego movie that are uh, IP heavy, but still have heart and make sense narratively, especially when you get to the end of it and realize what's going on. Yeah. I just wish more more movies uh, cared about honoring nostalgia when they try to weaponize it. Yeah, for sure. I think there's a lot of discussion, especially in like film circles these days about IP and how everything is bending towards IP and like you don't release a standalone movie anymore. You release the first part of a new cinematic universe or whatever and like and so much of that mentality is based on that appeal to nostalgia, right? Like, you want to have a long-running franchise so that people 20 years from now will keep watching your movies because I watched them when I was in high school or whatever. And, like, that's a thing that Stream 6 talks about pretty directly, which is one of the reasons I think that movie is, is pretty interesting and uh, handles that, like, sort of nostalgia idea pretty well. Yeah, they... They being, I guess, the industry want you to buy in for the long haul. Mm -hmm. But I, I think we've, uh, you know, come to the pretty clear conclusion that they might be successful just based on the IP and getting people in theater seats. But to truly be successful beyond the metrics of sales and more in the terms of craftsmanship, nostalgia, it has to mean something to the people who were there originally whether there is a happy time in their past or there for the first movie whatever the case may be you can't just throw references at the screen and expect it to be more than just pictures flashing right right i'm excited, I'm excited to talk about scream six that's something <laughs> we'll get there one day the other thought i had was nostalgia isn't something that i seek out i'm not like over here like a little nostalgia gremlin looking for my next hit of nostalgia. It's something that happens to me. Like you just, mm -hmm. when it works, you feel it like tears of the kingdom. Yes. Otherwise it is like the cool callbacks and references. I know that character. Yeah. Yeah. My brain is happy that I recognize that thing I like. Right. And this person next to me, they may not recognize it, which makes me superior for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is how I know I'm better than them. Right. Now I'm going to turn to them and tell them why this is a cool reference. Just in case they missed it. What is wrong with us? <laughs> Don't come down on that too hard. It's like 90% of what this show is. <laughs> what do you mean? I guess it'll actually be next episode, but an episode that we've already recorded uh, has pretty big chunks of it where I'm just going, now, did you know that this part here... <laughs> is uh referencing this thing in the original story that the film is based on <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah let me tell you a little story about john carpenter and ennio morricone <laughs> <laughs> it was a good story yeah <laughs> i did learn something so we've covered a lot of ground do you have any 
I don't know, closing thoughts or remarks or stories you want to share before we call it a day, an episode? I think the only thing I have left to say about nostalgia is that it smells great. Does it smell like teen spirit? Um, it's it's impossible to tell uh, because of how vague I was, but I was making a reference to Alan Moore's seminal uh, comic book, Watchmen. Ah. Which semi-prominently features a cologne called Nostalgia by Vate. Oh man, that is out there. I like it. That's great. Um, (laughs) So to close out, I mentioned my uh, formative video game experience was Legend of Zelda, specifically Ocarina of Time. And I know we've kind of talked about this before, but Ethan, if you would like to quickly share, what was your formative video game experience that is your nostalgia hit now? Uh, I would have to go with Final Fantasy VII. And you have indeed made me uh, recall a very similar experience to your Zelda medley, which is I pay a lot of attention to to music and soundtracks in media that I enjoy. Um, music is something that's like very important to me on a on a personal level. And I've always been a big fan of the Final Fantasy VII soundtrack. Um, I'm a big fan of Nobu Uematsu as a composer, probably saying his name wrong, so I apologize for that. But uh, I, I've always been a big fan of his work on the Final Fantasy franchise and the various other projects that he's done. And I think Seven is one of my favorite soundtracks of his, certainly up there with um, probably Ten being the other like, really big one. Hmm. But obviously, like on the hardware that Final Fantasy VII was released on, it was pretty limited what you could do with audio. And when they made, when Square made the Final Fantasy VII remake a few years ago, they redid all of that music as with like a full orchestra. And uh, it's really, really beautiful. And much like, when I read eleven twenty two sixty three and uh the it characters popped up when I started Final Fantasy VII remake and heard this remix of the opening track i I teared up immediately. <laughs> it had a huge emotional punch. Music is powerful, yeah, yeah, I get it because I was. I don't know why there was nothing sad, right? Sad, but that's how I was for the end of Tears of the Kingdom. I was just tearing up a little bit. It it felt like coming home. Yeah, that's a great way to describe it. Well, thanks, Ethan. Thank you, Sarah. that as someone who has never read Stephen King, but he seems cool. I've seen some of his tweets, so I have read some Stephen King. <laughs> Imagine if I said I've seen some of his exes. Oh, God. Ugh.
Yeah, I hate it too. All right. Anyway, 